morning, this morning what I'm talking about was perfect for last week. So um, it was awesome. It was perfect for last week because it took place in history one week after Easter Sunday, after the resurrection of Christ. So it was perfect. But we're going to pretend for a moment that it was, this is really last Sunday because it was all supposed to happen in the marathon and the rain and all that. So we're going to, we kind of skipped all that and we're kind of doing it again this Sunday. And and it's really kind of pointing, and it's, it's, it's really kind of important that we look at this, because I think when we have this picture of Easter, we've got 2,000 years of history and our own understanding of Scripture and our relationship with Christ, it informs a lot of our thought process about the resurrection and about the crucifixion, and, and rightly so. But if we take a moment and place ourselves in the lives of the, of the disciples, and we begin to think about what they were going through, a lot of the stuff that happened around the resurrection was really, was really incredible. I mean, just think, you had given your life to this man, you'd walk the countryside with him, alongside him, and you'd watch this angry mob approach him, arrest, you along with all of your friends deserted and fled and ran, you watched him go through a sham of a trial, beaten, crucified, and killed. You left with all kinds of crazy questions, like, is this the end? What does this mean? I mean, you saw the earth shake and the sky go dark, and then the reports begin coming in, first from the women that went to the tomb saying he wasn't there, and then from Peter and John themselves, and, and what does this mean? Jesus wasn't there, and they said they've seen him, but, but I haven't seen him, and, and I don't know what is happening. But if you imagine yourself, without the 2,000 years of history, without a complete picture of Scripture, and this sort of intense relationship with, have with the Holy Spirit, like, what is going on? And the disciples are really living in the middle of these questions. And that's what's sort of surrounding the events of Easter Sunday. I mean, we do it with, with sort of big celebratory services where everybody comes to church once a year and we make sure we have everything really cleaned up and looking nice. But back in those moments, it was a lot of chaos and it was a lot of confusion. Well, this morning we're going to kind of explore a, a little piece of history that took place seven days after that moment, that incredible moment, that Sunday that everything changed. And we're going to look at it from the perspective about seven days later. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in two places in the book of John. But you start in John chapter 20, if you've got it. Now there's kind of a remarkable thing, and we'll pray in just a second, kind of a remarkable thing that's happened. It's way after the sunrise, and, and the women have seen this sort of resurrected Christ, or they've witnessed the empty tomb. It's way past that. It's now towards the evening, and the disciples are gathered together, and they're in a locked room because they're petrified. It says that they're actually afraid of the Jews. John chapter 20 explains that the the disciples are afraid of the Jews. They're afraid that, like Jesus, they're going to be arrested and killed. And they'd heard these reports that Jesus, the tomb was empty and that he'd been raised, but they didn't know what to do. And so they gathered together in a room, and they locked the door, and they just sat there. Well, it says that in that evening, Jesus himself came through the locked door. He appeared in this sort of miraculous way, and he looks at them, and he shows them the nail marks on, their, on his hands, and he shows them the spear mark in his side, and he looks at them, and he says, so as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And he sends them at that moment, basically, into the world, having shown them this great demonstration. Well, all the disciples were gathered except for one. Thomas, right? The Thomas that we've heard of, the Thomas that we're going to look at today, was not present at that gathering. All the others were there. I don't know where he was. Maybe he was on a Union 5 or at a potty break or whatever, but that little something happened in downtown, but he was not there. And the disciples had this incredible encounter with Jesus, and Thomas missed it. And we know Thomas for his moments of doubt, but I want to put something else out there today to kind of explore this, because it's a remarkable thing that happens in the life of Thomas, and I think it's echoed through my heart. And I think it's echoed through our hearts. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is, um, that it is true. 
God, that it is living and active. Lord, I deeply believe that um, having an encounter with your word is having an encounter with you. It is alive. And God, I pray this morning that as we open, open your word, as we open scripture, God, that you will speak to our hearts. You are the only one who reveals truth. God, we do not discover you on our own. You reveal yourself to us. So take a moment and just prepare our hearts to meet with you. So right where you sit, whatever you brought in here this morning, whatever you're carrying with you, um, just ask the Lord to, to teach your heart something, to remove whatever that is that's going on, whatever barrier, struggle, um, distraction, whatever. Just ask the Lord to remove that and to teach you something new. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you, uh, in front of you, wherever. Just, even if you don't know their name, just pray for the guy in the whatever shirt or just pray for someone. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, pray that you would teach us this morning through your word. We turn this entire morning over to you. You are worthy of our praise. God, you are worthy of our lives. I deeply believe that not only are you a God worth dying for, Lord, but that you're a God worth living for. So, Lord, hear our, our heart this morning. Teach us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Easter Sunday, we have that moment. The gathered disciples, Jesus showing up to the locked door, showing them his hands and his side, and then sending them into the world. Well, we know that Thomas is gone. We're getting ready to see that. But the disciples engaged with each other. They were all involved, involved in each other's lives. And so most certainly they looked around and they were like, where's Thomas? Like Thomas would have loved this. And you can almost imagine they run out and find him and tell him. And then it leads us to this really kind of famous interaction that Thomas has with the disciples and then ultimately with Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to John 20, verse 24. And we're going to read those four verses after that. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, was one of the twelve. He was with the disciples when he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hands in his side, I will not believe it. A week later the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. So the first part of that takes place seven days prior to Thomas's interaction with Jesus. It's actually Easter Sunday. And the disciples rush out of the room and they go and find Thomas and they say, we have seen the Lord. It's almost like, you're not going to believe this. I can't believe you weren't here. We saw him. He did this. He held out his hands. He, he showed us his side. Thomas, this was the most incredible thing ever. All the reports that we'd heard, they are absolutely 100% true. And Thomas looks at them in that sort of famous line, right? And he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger in those places or I put my hand in his side, I will not believe right so thomas is basically asking for the exact same things the other disciples got they were there with jesus they showed him he saw them thomas wanted to see it for himself this is crazy he's never heard anything like it i don't want to just believe it i actually want to see it just like you did and then the text tells us that a week goes by and the disciples were gathered again in the same room with the door locked in the same manner this was probably something they did every single night because they were petrified there was still a ton of buzz going on about this Jesus. His body couldn't be found. The Jews were angry, and the disciples were petrified that they were going to be basically arrested and have the same fate as Jesus himself. 
So they gather together in secret behind locked doors. The exact same way those other ten disciples, because Judas had already taken his life, were gathered there without Thomas. It says that Jesus appeared to them again in the exact same way. He walks through the door, locked door, and he basically says, peace be with you. And then he walks right over to Thomas. Right? The only interaction that we see is he goes over to Thomas and he says, Thomas, put your hands here. He holds out his hands and he says, put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas' interaction is, my Lord and my God. Now I find this remarkable for lots of reasons. One, because we all know Thomas for this incredible moment of doubt. We, that's what we know him for. In fact, we have this kind of slogan in our English culture, our English language of don't be a doubting Thomas, meaning don't doubt, have faith, and believe. And Thomas gets this sort of rap for being the disciple that doesn't want to believe. But you've got to remember the other disciples all saw it for themselves. They had their hands in there. They heard Jesus' voice. Thomas just wanted what they wanted. But I want you to look at this interaction, not so much from the doubting, not so much from all the, the sort of circumstances, but from the entire picture. Because I think there's something here, well, I think there's a lot of things here, but I think there's something that's actually incredibly remarkable that echoes through a lot of the, the kind of places in my heart. So Thomas has got this bad rap for being a doubter. And I'm going to shed some light this morning to show you why I think that there's actually a lot more to this, this guy. But let's start with that for a moment. Because what we see in this interaction is, I think, something that the other disciples were experiencing too, which is a lot of fear. Because doubts and fears at that point in time were extremely real. Thomas's doubts and fears were real. We spent three years of our life walking around with Jesus. We had watched him do the remarkable. We had watched him cast out demons and heal people and feed 5,000. And now we watched him be betrayed and killed. And then we've heard reports that his body has been taken and maybe he's coming back. And what does that mean? Is everything going back to normal? Do we get to walk around with him again? What does that mean for my life? I mean, all these questions. Are we going to die because we associated ourselves with this man? If you think about all the doubts and fears that were running through the mind and hearts of these disciples, you will realize that these things are extremely real. Now, we give Thomas this sort of, you know, kind of given this sort of downplay or, or really look down upon his kind of lack of faith moment. But if you take your experience, all the history and testimony, your own experience with church, even your own experience with the resurrected Christ, you take all that out and you stand two or three days removed from the resurrection, what is it that you're believing? What are you afraid of? Thomas's doubts and fears, I think, are extremely relevant and they're extremely real. Now I say that, and I don't say they're right, I just say they're real. And I say that to say, basically to get us to this point, which is this. I believe that your doubts and fears are real, and I believe that mine are too. And I think we've all had them, if we want to be completely honest. What if this is all just crazy? What if there really is no God? What if he can't heal me, won't heal me, won't protect me, won't provide for me? What if all the things I thought were right aren't? Now, none of us would say those things out loud because we have been cultured, cultured, to live lives, Christian lives, that other Christians will validate. That's what we've been trained to do. So we're, and one of the side kind of unintended consequences of that is that we're very rarely authentic. Because we're told all the time that we just have to have more faith. That's what we look at Thomas. Thomas, just stop doubting and believe, man. You walked with Jesus. Surely those doubts and fears aren't real. And we're taught and trained not to articulate out loud our doubts and fears. And when we do that, it leads us to a place of inauthenticity. And even in the most sort of sacred relationships, whether it's a small group or, or a husband and wife or, or whether it's your best friend, we're still very rarely honest about our fears. 
Because number one, we don't want to admit them out loud. And number two, we don't really want people to think that we are wondering those things. Because we're taught to suppress any of those doubts or kind of doubts of faith as, seeing, as being completely like not okay. So we suppress them and put them away. We're very rarely honest. I mean, honestly, people, hey, man, Trip, how are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm okay. Oh, really? Why? Well, I'm just struggling right now. I'm really wondering, honestly, uh, if I trust God. I don't even honestly know if he's real. Marriage is kind of a mess, and I don't know that God can provide for us. And I'm, well, honestly, I'm just not sure I want to keep going on. Oh, okay, man. Well, I'll pray for you. Just trust Jesus. They're like, really? Just trust Jesus? I've been trying to do that. It's not working. I mean, we're not honest because nobody wants to hear that. And we're not like that all the time, but we have those moments that sort of swell up in our soul and we just go, God, where are you? Right? Tragedy happens in our life. We lose something dear or desperate and we walk through something that just continually feels empty and hollow and we say, God, I'm petrified. I say that because I want you to understand that the doubts and fears that you have, not only about God, but about life, are real. And we don't have to believe the lies that tell us not to kind of admit those things. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying acknowledging that they're real. And here's why it's important to acknowledge that they're real. Because Jesus knows your heart. He knows your doubts and fears. There's something incredibly liberating when we say, I have a real fear. But one of the amazing things about it is that God knows my fear. Think about how he handles Thomas, right? So here they are all locked in this room. Thomas, is, he's, I think he's afraid, and I think he has serious reservations about whether any of this is true, right? And so Jesus shows up in that room, goes through that locked door, and what's the one thing Jesus do? He walks over to Thomas, right? And he says, Thomas, touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. What was Thomas's main struggle? He looked at those disciples and he said, unless I can put my fingers in his hands, put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. That was his stance. So what does Jesus do? He walks in and says, do this. And he meets him right in the middle of that fear. He knew that that's what Thomas was afraid of. Now check this out. It wasn't like Peter called him and said, hey Jesus, I got this thing. Thomas wasn't there. And he told us the other day that unless he got to do what we did, which is touch your hands and your side, he's not going to believe. So you know what would be really awesome? Is that, Jesus, when you show up, if, if you'll do the same thing you did for us to him. And then Jesus says, you know what, Pete, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought about that. So that's what I'm going to do. And they do it, and Jesus walks in, he kind of gives Peter a little wink, and then Thomas is like, hey, that's not what happens at all. I mean, seriously, Thomas is doubting, and Jesus steps into the middle of it. Because Jesus knows Thomas's heart. Most of us aren't known by anybody. I mean, really, truly known by anyone. But there's something incredibly liberating when you can understand that God already knows your fears. He knows your heart. Even though you haven't said them out loud, it does not matter. God knows you. He knows every breath that you breathe. He knows every thought that circulates through your head. So that fear that you have, that debilitating kind of doubt-ridden fear, Jesus knows it. And it's not alone. A lot of times our fears and doubts are places of deep loneliness. But when we understand that the God of the universe knows already what we're doubting and fearing, there's a liberation there. And something incredible happens. So we have these real doubts and fears. We have a God that knows them and knows them intimately. And then we have a God who meets us in the middle of them. So what does Jesus do? He walks over to Thomas and he says, Thomas, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to invite you to do exactly what you are struggling with. He meets him right in the middle of it and he says, put your hands here. Put your hand at my side. 
And he meets Thomas right in the middle of that fear. He didn't walk in the room and say, Thomas, you've got to get over your doubt. And then you will be able to see me for who I am. Get over that fear and believe. And then you will see exactly what I have for you. Now he walks over to Thomas and he says, Thomas. He walks right in the middle of his questions and says, Thomas, touch me. Touch my hands, touch my side. And he doesn't berate him, right? He doesn't walk over there and be like, how could you not believe these fools? They already told you. You didn't believe a thing they had to say. You know what, Thomas? I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed, right? Like your dad did when you lied to him about where you were on Friday night, right? Not mad. No, he was mad. No, he, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't berate him and be like, why can't you believe like these other guys? Well, the other guys saw it. They touched him. They heard his words. He doesn't ridicule him in front of everyone and be like, I can't believe you doubted. He just walks over in the middle of it, meets him in the middle of it, and says, put your hands here. And then he looks at him, and this is almost like this interaction is just happening with Thomas, but everybody else seems to be gathered around, and he says, stop doubting and believe. Now notice what he'd said. He didn't say, stop doubting and believe, before he engaged Thomas. He engaged Thomas in his struggle and said, stop doubting and believe. I am here, and I know. He revealed himself to Thomas, right? And then invited Thomas into a relationship that would change everything. God will meet you right in the middle of your doubts and fears. Most of us think that we've got to figure this thing out, conquer our doubts and fears, finally drag ourselves back to church and get our life back together, and then God will bless us. It's a lie. Jesus shows up in the middle of our doubts and fears in the worst opportune times, in the times that we are most afraid and most fearful and struggling the most, and he says, stop being afraid. I'm right here. Touch me. And this is what he does with Thomas. But most of us are so blind and so kind of involved in our own fears that we don't even see God's movement around us. Your doubts and fears like Thomas's are extremely real. Jesus already knows them, so quit pretending that he doesn't and that you're all that alone. And he will show up in the middle of them and invite you into a life-changing kind of encounter relationship moment with him and it will lead to something incredibly significant look at what it leads thomas to so thomas has this moment right so he's gathered there and he says put your finger here see my hands reach out your hand and put it into my side stop doubting and believe and thomas said to him my lord and my god now make no mistake that statement is an expression of pure authentic worship we kind of think worship is about music and song and about things like that, but really worship's not about that. At its very core, worship is a recognition of who God is in comparison to who I am. That is where worship begins. When I recognize that God is all-powerful and I am powerless, that God is all-knowing and I know very little, that God's love is incredibly deep and, and amazing and my love is flaky and shallow, right? When I realize who God is in comparison to who I am, the only result is worship. That's where worship begins and ends, not with songs we like and don't like and who does it better with smoke machines. The idea really is, God, this is who you are, and I am a failure, and the fact that I'm in your presence leads me to worship. And Thomas's response when he saw Jesus and when Jesus said, stop doubting and believe, was all he could seem to utter was, my Lord and my God. Notice the words, my, you are my Lord and my God. In other words, meaning this is no longer someone else's story right? This isn't the other 10 disciples that are gathered around saying, you got to believe this, Thomas. Thomas is saying, I've experienced you and you are my Lord and my God. And it's basically a statement of worship saying, you are everything that I need. And I don't care about the rest of these folks because I've experienced you and it's changed me. 
Now, this, is, this will be a really great place to end, but I don't want your thoughts with Thomas to end here, right? I don't want this to be the place that we sort of park everything on because there's another interaction that we see Thomas have in Scripture that I think is, is really remarkable, and it's in John chapter 11. Now, if you were here on Easter, this is going to sound, uh, the story will sound familiar because it's, we're going to look at the back end of the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, you might remember Easter Sunday when we were over at Will Rogers, I, I kind of explored this story, this text, and talked about how, how Mary and Martha were having these moments with Jesus where they say, where were you? If you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. So if you're here on Sunday, that Sunday, you remember all that. So this is what's happened. Jesus is with the disciples, and he gets word that his dear friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is really sick. In fact, he's been sick for a couple of days, and the disciples are worried, and Jesus says, don't worry, this is not going to end in death, right? They wait around for two more days, and Lazarus is basically good and dead. He's been dead for four days. I talked about that that past Sunday. He was really dead. And then Jesus looks at the disciples, and he says, let's go back to Judea. Let's go back to where he is so that we can be with him. And he kind of gives them this little, par- this little parable. And the disciples say, hey, we can't go back there. You want to know why? Because just a few short days ago, they tried to kill you, tried to stone you. You can't go back there. And then Jesus tells the story they don't get. And then Thomas, look at this. Then Thomas has this incredible interaction. Look at verse, um, let's go to verse 11, I think, if I remember right. Oh, I lied to you. Let's go to uh, verse 14. Chapter 11, verse 14. This is what Thomas says. Okay? He says, Jesus says this, and so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. This is after the disciples have already said, We can't go to there, you're going to die. So then Thomas, called Didymus, the only other time we really see Thomas in Scripture, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, we see two interactions in Thomas in Scripture. One, we see the one that we all know about, the doubting, I can't believe, you know, I'm not going to believe this, da 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 And then we see this interaction. And this interaction is remarkable. And when they're paired together, I think, I think we get this real picture of Thomas's heart and character. So here's what's going on. They're petrified because Jesus is leading them back to the place where they're all about to die. Death by stoning, right? I mean, that's a pretty awful way to die. Of all the ways to die, that's not up there on the top, like, ones I would choose, I mean, they throw, basically run you out of town, throwing rocks at you till you fall off a cliff in the Middle East and then heap huge rocks on you and just leave you there to die. That's what they tried to do to Jesus because he basically claimed to be God. It was blasphemy. And the disciples are saying, we can't go back there. And Jesus looks at them all and says, no, we're going back. And I'm glad that Lazarus is dead because I want you to see the, mir- the miraculous move of God. And then Thomas gathers the disciples. It doesn't even tell us that Jesus was there. He looks at all the other disciples and he says, let us go back there with him so that we also may die with him. Now, here's a couple of remarkable things about that. It, I think it gives us a little glimpse into Thomas's heart. I deeply believe that Thomas trusted Jesus. Like when they were standing there together, Thomas trusted Jesus. He didn't get the whole scenario. He didn't even understand the parable that Jesus had told. But he trusted Jesus enough to go, I will walk with you, whoever that is. And I don't even know the outcome and what that looks like. I believe Thomas had a trust for Jesus. I also believe that Thomas kind of believe that Jesus was someone worth dying for, or in this case, dying with. I don't believe Thomas is being sarcastic, looking at the guys going, well, I guess we'll just go die with him. Sarcasm is not really big in Scripture, right? That's sort of a modern deal. I believe he was being honest. I believe he looked at the disciples and he said, all right, he's going. Let us go with him so that we can die alongside him. He believed the life of Jesus was worth dying for and with. 
Now, when you take that picture, this incredible proclamation of courage, and you partner it with this sort of moment of doubt, I think we see a complete picture of Thomas. And I'll, I'll be real honest, Thomas is the person I want to be. I don't want to be the superhero of faith that has the cape and never fails and never doubts and everything's perfect because that's a lie. It doesn't exist. But here's what Thomas is. He's incredibly courageous, even in the face of not really knowing what to expect. He trusted Jesus, and he was willing to die alongside him or for him. But in the middle of his life, he recognized that he had very real fears, very real fears that Jesus met him in the middle of. And when he met Jesus in the middle of those, his only response was worship. It wasn't perfection. There's something raw and authentic about a life that says, Jesus, you get all of me. And I'm going to have moments of sheer doubt and terror. Please show up in my life and show me who you are. And my response won't be perfect. It'll just be my Lord and my God. Notice what Thomas didn't do. He didn't bust out of the room and go and save the world. He didn't run out of there and say, I can't wait to save this entire planet. He just said, you are my God. That's who I want to be. I don't know who you want to be. But if we're honest... I think it's a picture of most of our hearts. Real fears, real doubts. Believing we're deeply alone. But a desperate need to recognize that the God of the universe already knows what you're experiencing, feeling, and thinking. He wants to show up in the middle of your life. And our response to that has got to be, you are God. I don't understand. I don't even get it. But I trust you. And I believe in this case that before you can be worth dying for, you've got to be a God that's worth living for. So you get it all. All of it. This morning as we celebrate communion, we do it once a month, that's really the expression that I hope that we capture, which is, God, you did this for me. Like, you know me this well. You gave your life so that my sinful disaster of a heart would be reconciled to you. And that, God, my fears and my doubts and my failures are so real. But you meet me in the middle of them. You don't berate me or beat me up or ridicule me. You just step in the middle of them and you invite me into a relationship with you. And what's your response going to be to that? Is it, Jesus, I trust you. You're worth living for. You are my Lord and my God. That's all that's left. This morning as we participate in this meal, that's the picture that I want you to have, that picture of worship that says, God, I don't have all the answers. I don't even know where the answers are. But I trust you. I believe you're worth living for. You are my Lord and my God. That night that Jesus was betrayed, the very, very night that he was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. They shared a meal together. They shared their hearts together. And he did this sort of significant moment with them that we get to participate in as part of the body of Christ. As a, not just a reminder of what Christ did, but as a proclamation of his coming back. Let's pray together.